Our gracious Heavenly Father, once again, Lord, what a privilege and an honor and a blessing it is that you bestowed upon your people, that we could open up your word in a free country such as ours, where you have left the window open for us to sing to you these Christ-exalting songs, where we can give, where we could fellowship, where we could proclaim your goodness to one another, where we can open up your word and hear from you and apply your word to our lives. Father, I pray that this might be a time that would be precious to us always. I pray for soft and tender and receptive hearts to your truth, that we may apply it personally and collectively as a body. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is our text for this morning, specifically verses 7 through 16. They were to read this text this morning together. And you may remember that we're doing a two-part series really on the church. Um, What Jesus wants for his church. What Jesus wants for his church. Um, And today we're going to be looking at the fact that Jesus wants growth for his church. Really, the church is at the heart of what this text is all about, as well as Jesus' heart for his church. This text really is about what Jesus did for his people as well as what he desires for his people on an ongoing basis as we unfold his plan here on this earth as a church. And I told you last week that Paul, in chapter 4, verse 1, makes a major transition in the book of Ephesians, where he now, after three chapters of, of just expounding on the beauty of God's plan for his church and calling us out of darkness to the kingdom of light, Uh, by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and making us one church. He exhorts us in chapter 4, verse 1, in how we ought to be living in the light of that great salvation. He says that we ought to be walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. That is the overarching exhortation in chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians, that we walk or conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we said that this worthy walk in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4 really is a walk in unity. Not in the sense that we create unity as a church, but in the sense that we preserve the unity that Christ has established by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection. And us turning from our sins and putting our faith in Jesus' person and work allows us to be a part of the body of Christ. And so we're called to preserve the unity that Jesus has already established. And we said as well that we can think of unity in two different ways. On the one hand, which is the more popular way that we think about unity, it is the pursuit of peaceful relationships amongst us. The fact that we are one should drive us to be fleshing out relationships whereby we are reconciling with one another. We are pursuing peace with one another and harmony. So there's that sense in which we can talk about unity. That's why he even even mentions the Christ-like virtues of verses 2 and 3, whereby we are to be fleshing out um, unity as we practice those Christ-like virtues. But there's another aspect of unity I think that we often miss, and it is unity in this sense, in the sense of the pursuit of common purpose together, where we are moving in one direction cohesively and collectively and this, this type of unity, too, beloved, that Jesus desires. Jesus desires that his church would live peacefully 
with one another, that we would be um, people who pursue harmony relationally with one another. But Jesus also desires that his church would move cohesively and collectively in one direction together, fulfilling our mission here on this earth. And what is our mission? Our mission is to make disciples. Our mission is very clear, isn't it? Our mission is this, to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ by making disciples whose passion and pursuit is to know, love, and serve Christ, making other disciples who will do the same. That's our mission, to exalt Christ by making disciples whose singular passion and pursuit is to know, love, and serve Christ, making other disciples who will do the same. That's our mission, to make disciples. And this disciple-making mission consists of both an evangelistic and edificational component. On the one hand, we share our faith so that people come to know Christ. They turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus, the only Savior of their sins. And they are saved and rescued out of the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of light. That is evangelism. But on the other hand, we, once we come to know Christ, we are to grow up in Christ and help one another grow up in Christ. And that is the edificational component of building one another up in Christ. Jesus wants for us to grow in him, beloved. Jesus wants that his people would be spiritually productive, that we would be spiritually fruitful in the church. He said this in Matthew 16 and verse 18. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. He was speaking there not just of a numerical growth, but even more importantly and profoundly of maturity, of growth spiritually. In John chapter 15 and verse 8, he says this, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As we grow in Christ and and as branches, we are attached to the vine who is Jesus Christ. We are to be fruitful and productive for the king. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2 says that Christians, like newborn babies, should long for the pure milk of the word so that by it, by means of the word of God, we may grow in respect to salvation. So as we expose ourselves to the word of God... We are, and then we apply the word of God to our lives. We, by the spirit and the grace of God, are going to grow in Christ. This is the growth that Jesus desires for us personally and collectively as a church. And it's this growth and maturity that we see as the focus of verses 7 through 16 in a passage about unity. Now, we're not going to be able to look in detail at every single aspect or nuance of this Great passage, verses 7 through 16. But I want us to at least get a bird's eye view of the church and how it works to achieve growth and thus preserve unity. Okay? So the the question that I really want to answer for us is this. How does Jesus, the sovereign Lord of his church, effect and energize the growth of his church? How does Jesus the sovereign Lord of his church, effect and energize the growth or maturity of his church so that the church is unified and he is exalted. Which is what we want to see at the end of the day. We want to see his name exalted through his church. 
And what we see first and foremost is that the sovereign Lord of the church has graciously supplied for his church's growth. We see, first of all, his gracious supply for growth in verses 7 through 10. Now, how many of you know what significant event happened this last week in the history of the church? Anybody? In light of the resurrection, Jesus also what? Ascended. This last week, the ascension was celebrated. Forty days after Jesus' resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that happened this last week, I think Thursday, if we were keeping track of the 40 days. Monumental event, highly significant event for multiple reasons. The ascension was, was significant because first, it confirmed the exalted position of Jesus who the, the eternal Son of God went back and now sits at the right hand of the Father. The right hand mean, being the, the place of prominence at the right hand of the Father. The ascension of Christ also initiated his high priesthood for believers. The fact that he is mediating on behalf of us continually. Also, it guarantees his return. The fact that he ascended to the right hand of the Father means that he is coming back. And he is our hope. Amen? But according to this passage, there's another thing that happened at Jesus' departure or ascension. And it is this. That he gave gifts to his church. He gave gifts to his church. This gracious provision of Jesus is really the point of verses 7 through, through 10. Look at verse 7. After emphasizing the unity of the body in verses 1 through 6, that we are one body. Now he gets to the uniqueness of each individual to the, and diversity within the body. And it says in verse 7 that to each one of us, each one of us, grace was given. By who? Well, it was according to the measure of Christ's gift. Jesus gave this, these gifts. Verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. The last line there of verse 8. And look at verse 11. And he himself is the focus there. He himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and so forth. The emphasis in those verses is that Jesus has graciously provided for his church gifts to his people. According to this text, he gave gifts to his church, and that happened upon his ascension. The fact that he ascended. Verses 8 through 10 speak of this ascension. In fact, verse 8 is a quotation of Psalm 68 and verse 18 specifically. And Psalm 68 is a, is a victory psalm of David that really speaks of, of the one true God, Yahweh, being the conquering hero who is the triumphant king who gives gifts to his people and receives gifts from his people as a triumphant king. And Paul quotes that psalm, and specifically verse 18, to validate or support what he has just said in verse 7 about Jesus, the triumphant king, also giving gifts to his people according to his divine prerogative. As it says in verse 7, according to the measure of Christ's gift. So just in the same way that Psalm 68, God is a triumphant king, in like manner, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is a triumphant king who, like the triumphant kings of old, freely and abundantly gives of his spoil to his subjects who are his church. Beautiful, beautiful quotation. 
And why is he able alone to do this? Well, because he's the risen, ascended, and exalted Christ. Verses 9 through 10 highlight this exalted status of Jesus by mentioning his ascension. He alone is able to give these gifts because he ascended on high, it says. In other words, he is exalted. Having descended, which is a reference to Jesus' incarnation and then his subsequent declaration of victory over the spiritual realm as well. It says that Jesus ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. He's the exalted one. And so what is the point of verses 7 through 10? I don't want you to miss this. Here's the point. The ascended and exalted Christ is the sovereign Lord of his church who graciously supplies his church with what she needs. Personally and collectively, as he pleases as the king. According to the measure of Christ's gift. He abundantly supplies for his church what we need, beloved. Nothing worse than placing expectations upon someone and not providing them with what they need to carry out a particular mission or expectations, right? Nothing worse than that. We get a taste of this in our world, don't we? Um, Those of you who have worked out in the workforce for many years understand what this could be like to be working in a particular environment in the secular realm and have expectations placed upon you and them not providing what you need to be able to fulfill those expectations, For a number of years uh, recently, a few years ago, I worked at a laboratory uh, locally, close to here, doing forensic drug testing, which was definitely not my field, science. I don't know how in the world I wound up there for a few years, but God had his plan uh, to teach me some lessons through that. But there were many challenges and many difficult things that went on in that workplace. Uh, Many difficult people on the one hand, but the hardest thing for me were the high expectations and and challenges that were placed upon the workers there. I mean, every week, every Friday, we would get together with the bosses and they would sit down and look at the quota. How much did we get done? And that we meet expectations and that we meet um, everything uh, everything that we needed to produce for that particular week. And, you know, one thing for me was to have those expectations placed upon me. Um, and I mean, they were the bosses, they were the company that's hiring me and paying me. So I need to make it happen no matter what and work as hard as I possibly can. But the worst thing about that particular place was not that they had expectations, but the worst thing about it was that they didn't give us what we needed to fulfill those expectations, to produce what we needed to produce. As the company began to, to do research, they realized that technologically we were behind other labs that, that did the same work that we did. And even in the workplace, everything was outdated and the, 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 um, the, um, the machines that we had to produce the work were outdated. And as soon as they began to realize this, which they would have, should have realized this way before, right? They've, by the way, they started realizing this as I, I was leaving. But obviously they realized, hey, how do we have these expectations upon our workers and yet we don't, pr- we don't provide them with what they need in order for them to fulfill those expectations, See, we had a mission, a mini mission at that lab to be the best laboratory in our particular area of expertise, but we, we weren't provided with what we needed. Nothing worse than that, beloved. And yet, isn't it beautiful and aren't you thankful that according to this text, as it pertains to the church and the mission of the church, Jesus, the sovereign Lord of the church, has given us everything that we need to accomplish our mission. Everything that you need that pertains to life and godliness. Christ has provided that for you. 
Everything that we need as a church to fulfill our mission here on this earth, Jesus, the sovereign Lord of the church, the risen, exalted Christ, has provided everything that we need. That's what he is saying here, that each one of us has been given gifts. Jesus has abundantly, graciously provided his church with what they need for growth. Now we need to see how this growth happens. And that's our second point. Okay, this is beautiful and glorious. Secondly, we see Jesus' strategic plan for growth. Not only has he graciously provided for the church's growth, but secondly, we see his strategic plan for growth as outlined in verses 11 through 16. And I love what verses 11 through 16 outline here. It's one of my favorite texts because what I gather from here is that my Lord Jesus is deliberate. He is purposeful. There is divine design in how the church is to, is to function if the church is to grow and we are to mature as individuals and as a church collectively. There is a strategic plan that is outlined for us here in verses 11 through 16. And I want, you to, I want to give you in summary fashion where we're headed, okay? Here it is. Here's the strategic plan as outlined in verses 11 through 16. The risen, ascended, and exalted Christ, which is the point of verses 7 through 10, has graciously given gifted people to his church, beginning with those mentioned in verse 11, but extending to all believers. The risen, ascended, and exalted Christ has graciously given gifted people for a specific purpose, for a specific time, with specific results in mind. And we're going to look at each of those, unpack that strategic um, plan, master plan in verses 11 through 16, one by one, okay? First of all, the exalted Jesus has given gifted people. Notice in verse 11, he has given in this master plan, this strategic plan, gifted people. Now, he's already mentioned gifts in verse verses 7 through 10, but here in verses 11, verse 11, he mentions the gifted people or individuals. And what I want you to notice is something really important here in verse 11. And it is this. He only mentions specific individuals who really form the foundation of the church. So he mentions in verse 11 apostles and, and prophets. Individuals that passed on a content. And Jesus passed on content to his apostles. A body of truth that now we have encapsulated in the word of God. So apostles and prophets as we understood them are no longer in place today for the church. So he mentions apostles and prophets who form the foundation of the church. But then he mentions evangelists, pastors, and teachers who are still in place today in the church. And all of these offices have something in common. They have to do with word ministries, the spoken word, if you will. They are not mentioned here, in other words, because they are the only gifted people in the church he mentions these specific individuals and offices in verse 11, or gifts, if you will, because these are, these are the people who proclaim the word of God. People who dispense the word of God as the starting point, if you will, in ministry. Because without the word of God being preached and taught, beloved, in every context in the church, there won't be growth in the body of Christ. Here in the, at Calvary, we say this often, that it all begins with the word of God proclaimed. So the pulpit is the main thing. This piece of wood here? No. The proclamation of the word of God. In the big pulpit, the little pulpits around the church, in the spoken word, um, in the context of relationships with one another, it all begins with the, with the dispensing of the word of God, but it doesn't end there. 
the pulpit may be the main thing where the word of God is preached and taught, but then it takes life and hands and feet as the people of God take the word of God and apply the word of God to life and to loving one another. So he doesn't mention these individuals because they are an elite group, because they are an exhaustive list of these gifted individuals or even limited to these, because every single believer, beloved, listen, every Christian has been given a set of gifts for the edification of the body of Christ. Every believer has. And he alludes to this in verse 7 when he says, if you look there, but to each one of us, the each meaning every Christian or every believer, but to each one of us, grace was given. Given by who? By Jesus Christ, according to the measure of Christ's gift. He alludes to this as well in verse 16. He says, from whom the whole body, there's the unity part again, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. There's a unique role that each individual Christian plays for the edification of the body. According to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Over and over in this text, what you see is unity. We're one whole body. But there's uniqueness as well. There's this, this diversity in the body where every member has something to contribute that God, by His grace, has given us to contribute for the building up of the body of Christ. So notice, each and every Christian upon salvation receives a package of spiritual gifts. What a beautiful truth, isn't it? These are grace gifts, beloved. From Christ. They are not things that you uh, worked for, that you merited, similar to salvation, where we don't merit our salvation. It's, it, salvation comes based upon the finished work of Christ. These are grace gifts given to you according to the measure of Christ's gift, according to his divine prerogative, and they're to be used not for yourself, but for the work of the ministry, to serve one another. We know from other texts in the New Testament that this is the case, that every single believer has a package of gifts. Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, says that that believers um, have gifts that differ according to the grace given to them. Speaking of all believers, and we all have different gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, meaning that they all look different. There's, we have gifts in terms of a multicolored, variegated sort of way. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 10 says this, that as each one, each believer, has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. Each of us as believers has been given a special gift or gift set, if you will. And he says, you're task is to be an obedient believer and employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So we're given these gifts, not for ourselves, to hoard them or to keep them for our selfish purposes. They are to be used for the edification of the body of Christ. And so if you're not using your gifts in the context of the church, beloved, the implication is you're being disobedient. You're in sin in a very real way. Because they were given to you, not for your own profit, or to put them in the closet of your own heart, so to speak, but to utilize them, to employ them in the serving of other people. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, same thing. There are gifts that were given to believers. And in 1 Corinthians 13, we are told that the motivation for using those gifts is love. Love, they are to be motivated, or we are to use them in a manner motivated by love. That's part of what is so, so 
cool, frankly, about being an elder pastor in a church, and in particular this church, beloved. You know what this text tells me and other texts? That each of you who are Christians sitting in here are a gift from the Lord to this church. And part of my privilege and my blessing as a, as a pastor here at this church is to, is to help you find yourself, so to speak. As you serve in the body of Christ and you are ministering to others, that we are able to affirm that which we see in the body of Christ as you minister and be able to say, brother or sister, you're gifted in that particular area. I want you to know that and you need to continue to abound in that. Part of my job as, you, as your pastor is to help you succeed in the use of your gifts. That you would build up your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. What a blessing. What a great profession I have, right? That you are all gifts and we are able to help you in that. So notice, those mentioned in verse 11 who dispense the word, provide the church with the, with the teaching of Christ, but it doesn't end there. As God's people hear and apply the word, they in turn obey the word by using their gifts as well. Okay, so within this strategic plan, Jesus has gifted, has given gifted people to the church, beginning with those mentioned in verse 11, these word dispensing ministries. But secondly, notice it's for a specific purpose that those individuals were given in verse 11 for a specific purpose. He says specifically in verse 12, it's for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Being a teacher of the word of God. Or being called to dispense the word of God in whatever capacity in the context of the local church is not for self-promotion. It's not for the purpose of self-exaltation. It's not for the purpose of self-advancement. In fact, James 3 verse 1 warns against not many wanting to be teachers or being teachers. For as such, as teachers, you will incur a stricter judgment upon your teaching. But those who dispense the word of God are to do it, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. We're called to equip the saints. That word equip is a beautiful word there. It means to, to supply, to, to put pieces together in such a way as to make something useful or effective for service. That's what pastors or teachers in the church are called to be, to be doing. You know, recently we moved. And one of the furniture pieces that we needed was an armoire for our, our television and some other items, including a, a VCR. Yes, we still have a VCR with a lot of good VHS tapes. Thank you. You like that, right, Bob? Good. So we needed an armoire for this stuff, all this junk that we have, right? So we go to Ikea, the place that has all these wonderful pieces of furniture, but they don't assemble any of them, right? So I purchase an, ar an armoire all in boxed in and it's not assembled and I get home and I open up this box and I start laying out all the pieces. You know, there's like a million different types of screws and, and nails in that stinking box. Maybe not that many, but you get the point. And all kinds of pieces of wood and slabs which different shapes and sizes and all of that. So I'm laying all of this out and at one point my little girl, Damaris, walks over and she's like, um, what is that, daddy? I'm like, what's an armoire, honey? He's like, that doesn't look like an armoire to me. And I say, well, in an hour, it will look like an armoire, sweetheart. You know, we have to assemble it. See? See, for her, a bunch of unassembled pieces, they're not really useful for anything, right? We needed to assemble that. And an hour later, I assembled that, that piece, that, that armoire, and I was able to put everything that I needed to put in there. And that furniture piece became useful for service, if you will. That is a small picture, beloved, of, of, of this word equipping there. 
The task of, of shepherds or pastors or teachers in the church is to equip the saints for the work of service, but not even the, the, the individual is the, is the equipper. It's the Word of God, the mechanism that we are using to equip people so that no matter who gets up here to preach the Word of God on Sunday morning, as long as they are preaching the Word of God in an accurate and clear manner and compelling manner, practical manner, then you will be equipped for the work of service if you apply the Word of God. See, so that is our task, to equip you for good works, for the meeting of, of needs. See, some churches, and I'm so thankful for this church that in eight years, I can honestly say that I have never felt as a pastor that, generally speaking, there are always exceptions, but that as a church, you as a congregation expects me to do all of the work of ministry. I'm so thankful for a church, beloved, that doesn't have that general mindset. But there are some unhealthy churches out there, I'll tell you that right now, and I was able to help pastors, and we have to counsel pastors through some of this, where the pastors, elders, or even the deacons are expected to do all of the work of the ministry, because they have the title, or they have the the role, or they're being paid to do that work. And as if the laity is to sit back, let pastors do all of the work, and the laity just sits back passively, lethargically, and doesn't do anything, just takes on the benefits of the ministry going on. That is not biblical, is it? That's not what the Bible says. Listen, pastors and teachers serve Christ by faithfully dispensing the word that the church may be equipped for good works and for you to meet needs. That you may apply the word of God in the use of your gifts to love God and love other people. That's what he says in verse 12, right? Pastors, teachers, equip the saints for the work of service notice. To the building up of the body of Christ. What does ministry ultimately consist of? Here it is. Christians who have been served by a mighty Christ. Saved by a mighty Christ. Being equipped to lovingly serve one another. So that the church is edified and built up beloved. That could be spiritual edification. That could be relational edification. That could be edification of an emotional nature as we open up the Word of God to one another. That could be meeting of physical needs in application of the Word of God. That's what ministry consists of. This is the strategic plan and the purpose for which Jesus gives uh, uh, gifts to the church, beginning with teachers and pastors who dispense the Word of God. But then you take the Word of God in an application of the Word, love Christ and love His people. That's what Jesus desires. Jesus desires both devotion and loving service from that devotion. One feeds the other. One feeds the other. Delighting in Christ should lead to the loving duty of of serving other Christians in the body of Christ. If you love Christ, you will love his people. You will serve his people. Didn't Jesus model this for us, beloved? On earth, he modeled loving devotion to his heavenly father, constantly in devotion to God the Father, constantly in prayer, constantly feasting upon that fellowship with his heavenly father in a very real way in prayer and dependence. But also he was a, a man who loved people and served people, our Lord, even people who, was, who he was not even acquainted with. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, it says this, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He was a self-sacrificial servant. If you are a Christian this morning, a saint, a holy one, a set-apart one, you are called to imitate the example of Christ to be a loving, self-sacrificial servant. 
in the body of Christ. And this is going to look very different for each of us. Some of us will be teaching. Others of us will be dispensing the word in other capacities. Some of us will be doing behind the scenes stuff. Others of us will be serving in, in more in the physical needs area. But whatever that looks like, beloved, you ought to be serving the Lord. And it should not just be duty driven. It should be out of a delight, a heart of delight for the Lord Jesus Christ. So that you do it with joy. And motivated by love for Christ and for his people, you see. There's a difference. Jesus doesn't only want our duty, okay? Us to do, do, do. He wants us to delight in him and out of love for him, then follow through with obedience and service to one another. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, as I mentioned, warns us in the context of spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians 12 about the fact that we need to be using our gifts flowing out of love. Motivated by love. So Jesus equips his church for her good works, as we see here. And we're going to see this in the book of Titus. In three Sundays, we launch into the book of Titus. And one of the things that has been so compelling and so impactful for me is that the church established is the church that's going to have an impact in the society around it. And we are going to be fervent for good works, zealous for good deeds, Because we have been given much grace by our loving Savior, we will be fleshing out good deeds in the context of relationships. And the the world around us will take note of that. And truly what the song does say, they will know that we are Christians by our what? By our love. By our love. So notice, within this strategic plan of the Lord, He gives gifts and gifted people for a specific purpose... And notice in verse 13, for a specific time, for a specific time. That's marked by that little phrase there, until we all attain. Here's the ultimate goal of ministry that we are serving and utilizing the gifts that Christ has given us for growth in order that we would not just as individuals, but as a collective whole grow in Christ. And notice what he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What does he mean by, until we all attain to the unity of the faith? Until everybody comes to know Jesus and gets saved? That's not what he means. He means faith in the sense of a unified doctrine. Like Jude puts it, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. People grounded in the faith. There's content here. That's why a strong church is, first of all, a theologically minded church. But that theology then must be practical in the sense that we had to flesh out the theology that we know. But don't throw out theology. Theology isn't just for the intellectual Christian. Theology is for every single one of you who should be reading theology, beginning with the Word of God, and then great books that point you back to the Word of God. Our faith matters, beloved, in the sense of a unified Christian body of Christian doctrine. That's what he means by until we all attain to the unity of the faith. But notice also that this body of Christian doctrine is centered on a particular person. He says, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. Notice, singular. There's that that unity of the body of Christ again. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You know in some what he's saying? He's saying, here is... The goal, the aim, to know Christ and to be like Christ. That is our aim as individuals and as a corporate body. He's speaking here of spiritual maturity. 
But this is not just a generic maturity. It's a maturity into the likeness of someone. Into the likeness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Christ is the standard of perfection. And we have to be moving in a direction we want to become like Jesus. You know, I was in a context a few years ago where lingo was thrown around. And people would always talk about, well, that person's so godly, you know. That girl is such a godly girl. That guy is such a godly guy. But then when you look at the people's lives, they were anything but godly. And so I begin to ask the hard questions like, what is it that consists of godliness? Well, according to scripture and according to this passage, godliness means that you are Christ-like. That you are like Jesus, right? That we're becoming more and more like Jesus to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So mark it, we, we grow in our knowledge of Christ and his word walking in devotion to Christ, delighting in His beauty and His majesty, and then flowing from that devotion, we apply the Word of God to our lives, and as we do so, we are by the grace of God conformed into the image of Jesus. And that is the aim. And beloved, that is a lifelong endeavor, right? Lifelong endeavor. We won't be like Christ until we see Him someday. But becoming conformed to the image of Christ is is our personal and collective effort and aim, beloved, as a church. We want to see every person here moved in the direction of becoming more and more like Jesus. And that happens through the vehicle of discipleship. That you would become more and more like Christ. If you remember in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28... Paul encapsulates his ministry in Colossians 1.28. And he says, you want, to, you want me to boil it down to something? Here is what my ministry boils down to right here. He says in Colossians 1.28, We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present every man complete in Christ. There's the aim. He says, This is what ministry boils down to. I proclaim Christ. We admonish every man, teach every man with all wisdom so that every man becomes more and more like Jesus, ultimately completion, right? Perfect conformity to Christ. And Paul knew that that was a lifelong endeavor and that would never happen on this earth. But he says in verse 29, for this purpose, so that people become conformed to the image of Jesus, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. He says, I work to the point of exhaustion so that people will become more and more like Jesus. That is the aim of Christian ministry, beloved. That's it, right there. Sometimes we just need to simplify ministry, don't we? Are you growing in Christ? Are you learning to, are you uh, growing in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and your love for him and in your service to Christ? And are you helping others do the same? That's really what it comes down to. And that's going to flesh out in so many different ways with all of us, depending on our gift set and abilities and experiences and so forth. But that's what it boils down to, doesn't it? I want to ask you, is this your aim? Is this your aim? To know, love, and serve Christ and to help others do the same. Is your aim to to know and be like Jesus? Or do you just, are you pursuing just religion and religiosity in the church? Going through the motions every Sunday morning. Is the church sort of like a, just a support group for you with no Jesus in it? Or reference to Christ? Is it a glorified self-esteem club for you? Where you just come and you come in and get it, feel better about yourself? 
See, Christianity, beloved, is fundamentally about a relationship with a living Savior, right? Who has forgiven you. And whom at one point, at the beginning of your Christian walk, so to speak, there was something that happened and you trusted in Christ and you turned from your sins and you trusted in Him as Lord and Savior, but you begin a lifetime of trusting and depending upon Him for all of life. And your desire and your aim is to become more and more like Jesus. You want to be like Christ. And you want to help others do the same. That is biblical Christianity. We love a risen Savior, right? Want to become like Him. What about this in your service to Christ? Are you delighting in serving Christ? Are you delighting in serving Him? Or has it just become, service has just become a, a duty for you? Drudgery for the spiritually elite in the church. Maybe service is a burden for you. Or maybe it's just a necessary evil. You need to do something in the church so that others can get off your back. Or so that pastor campus gets off your back. See, those who love Christ love to serve his people. They delight in Christ and they delight in serving his people. Because we long to to know him and to love him in a greater way. So within Jesus' strategic plan, notice, he has given gifted people for a purpose, for a time, and notice in verses 14 through 16, with specific results in mind. There are specific results in mind in this great strategic plan of Jesus Christ. Jesus' gracious plan carried out faithfully should lead to some growing results in each of our lives and collectively as a church. Okay? Notice negatively in verse 14. It says that we will no longer be children being tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That, that, that word children, there's a metaphor for spiritual immaturity. He's talking about being spiritually, spiritual children whose immaturity is seen in the fact that we are unstable. That's what he means by being tossed to and fro by, by waves. The, the picture there is, a, is of a cork in a surging sea being tossed to and fro. There's no stability in you. Not only that, but the the picture is of spiritual children who are immature and vulnerable and susceptible to false teaching. He says, carried about by every wind of doctrine. That is false teaching in this context. Literally, the the idea there of being carried about by every wind of doctrine has the idea of being swung around in circles, of feeling dizzy or, or in a frenzy or disoriented. Because you just don't know what you believe. You're not grounded in the truth. You're not founded in the truth. And sometimes, beloved, that's the case because we don't apply the truth to our lives. We don't think about the messages that we hear. We don't study the word of God to be faithful Bereans. And so, therefore, we are unstable, vulnerable people, susceptible to false teaching and false teachers. He highlights them here in verse 14, doesn't he? He says, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, Notice all of the terms, trickery and craftiness and deceit and scheming, all referring to teaching that leads you astray, that that dilutes the gospel and dilutes the word of God so that you don't even know what you believe anymore. That doesn't lead to growth in your life. Beloved, the world is full of false teachers who lead people astray, isn't it? The other day we were going to put on a movie 
And as we were turning to, to the channel to be able to stick in the movie, just for fun, I put on one of those supposedly Christian channels. And you have this guy sitting there, the main false teacher sitting there, and he's, he's interviewing all of these people who have received the great blessing of healing from the previous year. A year before that, they raised some seven point something million dollars. And here's all the testimonies of all those people. And if you will just give your faith gift, then you too can be healed of cancer, of marital issues, of whatever. Just send us your money. And my kids are like, what? You got to be kidding me. And of course, all of us are thinking they're not so. There's no way that anybody's going to send these, these clowns the money. There's no way. You know what? By, at that moment, he had already raised $2.5 million. $2.5 million. False teachers exploiting people like that. Listen, one thing is the false teachers. Like I, I sit there and by the grace of God, by the grace of God, I'm able to dissect somebody like that. But those teachers are one thing. It's another thing for the people who are there listening to these guys who drink the Kool-Aid. Drink the Kool-Aid. Who are vulnerable and susceptible and disoriented. They don't even know what they believe. Has it ever occurred to people that if these false teachers could truly heal, shouldn't they do it for free? The way that the Lord Jesus did it for free? And has it ever occurred to, to, to anybody that if these guys really had healing power like that, why do they allow the suffering to continue to go on this earth? Why? They need money to be able to heal other people? I get all bent out of shape when I think about this kind of stuff. But this is so prevalent in our culture, beloved. And you and I as believers, we are called to not be susceptible to tricky men who are deceitful and crafty like that and lie to you and promise you something that they cannot deliver and that the word of God is very clear that won't be delivered. Notice positively on the other hand, verse 15, but strong contrast, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Notice we are to grow up, not be spiritual children, but grow up in all aspects into Christ, Christ who is the head. You remember that metaphor, don't you? The headship of Christ, meaning that he is sovereign Lord on the one hand and also the source of life and sustenance. The headship of Jesus Christ. The body must stay connected and attached to, the, to Christ, the head. Otherwise, the implication is when the body is not connected to Christ, the body cannot grow if it's not focused upon Jesus abiding in the vine. False teaching and false teachers lead you away from Jesus. To self-works, self-performance, to getting what they want from you. They lead, they lead you away from Jesus and depending upon Jesus to dependence upon them and what they teach. No. He says we are to grow up in all aspects into Christ who is the head. Christ, he says, is the head. But exalting Christ is not some nebulous idea. It is to be seen in our interaction with one another, right? Notice what he says in verse 15. He says, speaking the truth in love. This is how it's going to happen. In obedience to Christ, the church is to be speaking the truth to one another in love. 
That goes from the pulpit to any teaching to your ongoing interactions with one another, beloved. This is one of the primary one another's, truthing one another in accordance with the word of God. And notice, he says, it's to be done in love. Why do we proclaim the truth with accuracy and conviction in any practical way? Because we are not people who want to be led astray by false teachers and false teaching, beloved. That doesn't lead to growth in your life. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And what he wants to promote and propagate on this earth is false, subtle, deceptive schemers. That's what he wants to promote and propagate. And so we preach the truth and we speak the truth to one another. And we do it, notice, in love. Love has been so prominent in the book of Ephesians over and over again. Love has been emphasized. Truth and love working together in the context of the church in a body that is unified and grows as one. Notice in verse 16 how he brings so many of these themes together, okay? He says, from whom, Christ, at the end of verse 15, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. He brings in, again, the unity of the body, but yet the, the unique individual role that, that every joint supplies for the edification of the body, so that the body, notice at the end of verse 16, is built up in what? In love. In love. I love this. I love this text. There is a strategy here, a master plan for growth in the, in the life of the church. It's so simple, isn't it? So basic. This is what disciple making comes down to right here in the context of the church. This is what growth and maturity looks like in the context of the church. So that we don't need to go after mechanisms or the latest church growth tactics, beloved, for us to grow as a church. We need to go back to the word of God and what Jesus has outlined already in his master plan. And there are some key observations so important to the life of the church that I want to leave you with in closing. Okay? One, note again, Jesus is the head of his church. Not the elders, not the pastors, not the deacons, not any of you who've been around the church for a really, really long time. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the sovereign ruler of the church, and he's the source of life and growth in the church. He's the one, verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Jesus, from the context at the end of verse 15, is the one who causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Without him, we can do nothing. Nothing. John 15, 5, abide in me, said Jesus, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Ultimately, Jesus is a source of growth, and we need to remember that. Didn't we learn that from Colossians? Not to go after these counterfeit um, uh, teachings or counterfeit systems of belief that drive us away from Jesus, because ultimately they're not going to lead to growth and maturity in our lives or in the life of, of the church. Jesus is the head, the sovereign ruler and source of life and growth. Secondly, as head of the church, Jesus desires unity and growth. He desires unity and growth. 
How important is unity and growth to Jesus? As we've talked about these last couple of Sundays, he has graciously, abundantly supplied us with everything that we need. And he's given us, beloved, a strategic plan to accomplish and carry out this master plan so that his church grows and matures, so that he is exalted. If this is, if this unity and growth is important to our Savior and, and you love the Savior, then you should desire to grow and mature and to preserve unity as well because that's what your loving Savior desires. So as I said, we don't look to gimmicks or the latest success plan for growth. We look to Him, to Him and what He desires for His church. Thirdly, notice the unity and diversity seen in this text. There is unity in that we are, on the one hand, one body, one church, so that we don't function individualistically um, at, the, at the expense of not focusing on the good of the whole. We are one body, but we are also individual members of one another. And each of us, listen, each of you as believers are key contributors and are called to be key contributors. Now, if you're not a Christian, what is your first step? You must turn from your sins and trust Christ. You must be forgiven of your sins first and foremost. You must be reconciled to your creator. And that only happens as you trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that you may be part of the church. If you're not in Christ, you're not a believer, you're not part of the church. This is not a, a, a club that you're joining. This is not, this is not a glorified self-esteem group. You are part of the church when you're part of Christ and you are in Christ. You are a Christian. You've committed your life to him. You've been forgiven of your sins in Jesus Christ. And then you are part of the church. But for those of us who are part of the church, you need to remember that Jesus wants you to be, listen to me, an active participant and not a passive spectator. You are to be proactively using what you have been given, the gift set that God has given you by his grace. Not for your own selfish purposes, not, in the, not hiding that in the closet of your own heart, spiritually speaking, but you are to be using those and contributing for the edification of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you are not doing that, you are in sin. You're actually in sin. Because the gift set that you were given was not given so that you can hoard it. It was given to you so that you can utilize it in love for the edification and the building up of Christ's people for His glory. Amen? Fourth, and finally, I want you to remember this. A growing, maturing body is a church devoted to the truth on the one hand and love. Both. Look at verse 15. He says, but speaking the truth in what? In love. Both truth and love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, causes the proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in what? In love. In love. Truth and love. People ask, should, it, we, should we be a church that is committed to the truth? Or should we be a church that is committed to love? Answer? Both. It's a both and, not an either or. These are Siamese twins, if you will. These are two sides of the same coin. 
They are not incompatible commitments, truth and love. They are two sides of the same coin. The more that we grow in the knowledge of truth, the word of God, beloved, the more that we should grow in love for God and love for one another in obedient response to an application of the word of God, the truth. Both. It is very possible to be a church really committed to the truth, intellectually speaking, but lack a heart for God and a heart for people. No love. Nothing that fleshes itself out as far as sacrifice and service for others. It's all just about you. But on the other hand, you can claim to be a loving church, but not be committed to the truth, to the word of God, to Christ, to obedience, to holiness, to Christ's likeness in your life. It's very possible to have this wishy-washy, unbiblical, superficial kind of love. That is just emotionally driven and doesn't have any substance to it. Rooted in Jesus Christ and his word. Just as somebody has said, true love is always most concerned with the purity of its object. Think about salvation. God manifested his great love for us. In the fact that he set us apart in Christ from sin to holiness, right? It's a a purifying kind of love. It's a a truth-purifying kind of love that God has displayed toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the same kind of love that we ought to have, beloved. So truth and love go together. Paul says truth and love work together in a unified, mature, growing church. It's a both-and, not an either-or. And so that's the kind of church that we want to be, beloved. What does Jesus want for his church He wants growth and maturity personally and collectively. And ultimately, this growth and maturity is is in conformity to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has graciously provided us with everything that we need for that growth and maturity, as well as given us a strategic plan. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, you are a gracious God. You have not left us confused on this earth as to your mission, or you have not given us, Lord, the short end of the stick in any way, as to lacking that which we need to fulfill your mission. Father, help us to remember that we have been abundantly provided with everything that we need for the growth and maturity of your body, for preserving unity. And you have given us the strategic plan, the master plan for ongoing ministry in the church that we might grow in conformity to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us as people, that in a very specific, basic, practical way, that, Lord, you may help us each to consider today how we might specifically apply ourselves and apply your word to loving service to you and to one another, given that which you have abundantly provided for us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.